All right, this is Cloud Unfiltered. I am your host, Nikki Acosta. My co-host Val is on vacation. Hope you're having fun somewhere, Val. I am really excited about today's guest, Tim Crawford. Tim, uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Nikki, and thanks for having me on the podcast today. Uh, Tim Crawford, CIO Strategic Advisor at Avoa. Um, so former CIO, 25 years in IT, and looking to uh, maybe tap into some of that expertise as part of our conversation today. Yes, I'm super excited about that. Just before the show, I have a new puppy. For those of you uh, watching the video, this is Marlon. He is a cockapoo. His dad is a five pound toy poodle and his mom is a 15 pound cocker spaniel and it's been raining so he's been going a little nuts. So apologies in advance if he barks today, but say hi Marlon, he's like a little teddy bear. I'm gonna, hi, try, I'm, I'm gonna try to put him down and uh, throw him lots of treats and try to keep him quiet for this thing. All right, so let's get into it. Tell us how you got into tech. It's always a good way to start the show. Well, I was standing on the side of the street and <laughs> someone walked up to me. No, um, I actually uh, started in technology back in the 80s, uh, working on PCs. It was kind of ironic. I was helping uh, a friend uh, get their computer fixed. And the person at the, the shop said that, um, gee, you know, you're asking a lot of interesting questions about this. Would you like a job? And this is back in the 80s when you know you did crazy things like that. Um, I said, sure, sounds interesting, be kind of fun playing with these computer things. Um, and I was already going to school um, to learn about computers. And so one thing led to another, and within a pretty short period of time, I was designing networks of all things back then. So, it was so a lot of fun. You're a networking guy at heart. I didn't know that. I started as a networking guy uh, back in the days when. Uh, we talked about some technologies that are no longer in use today. Um, Twisted Pair wasn't even a figment of our imagination. Uh, and, we were talking and Bon Jovi about, oh. was the new hotness. <laughs> well, maybe for you. <laughs> <laughs> what were you listening to back then, Tim? <laughs> uh, actually, kind of ironically, uh, in high school, I was a disc jockey. So I was listening to a lot of different things. Wow, we're getting into some... <laughs> You're, you're a disc jockey? I, I yeah. uh, When I was in high school, I interned with a, a radio station in El Paso, Texas. It was a rock station. And my job was to like go through these faxes and pick out good jokes and highlight them and give them to the hosts. That was like my job. That's awesome. That's super awesome. exciting. I didn't know you were a DJ. You are very interesting. Yeah. So DJ and had a company that I had formed in high school and that carried on for a couple of years after, and then I got into this tech thing, and that was the end. Started the uh, the process. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the Bay Area. Um, grew up in the East Bay, uh, out Walnut Creek area, um, and spent my formidable years out there. And then eventually moved to the peninsula and uh, was living down uh, between Menlo Park and Mountain View for for a lot of years. Uh, but yeah, I still call the Bay Area home, even though today I live in Los Angeles. Oh, you're in LA now. I was going to say that that looks like a very large home for San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but unfortunately, where where I live in Los Angeles, it's it's about as expensive as uh, the Bay Area. But yeah, it's all right. That that just means you're really good at your job. You must be <laughs> okay. 
Well, I, I like to think that I'm helping people along the process. I wouldn't say I'm the best at what I do, but because there are a lot of really great and talented and smart folks in technology today, I mean, many folks that you and I both know and work with. Um, so I'm very humbled to be uh, included with some of those groups. And such a nice guy too. I remember, what did I beat you? It was one of the cloud events, maybe like Cloud Expo or Cloud Connect or something back in the day, such a long time ago, it feels like, doesn't it? It does, it does. I mean, we've been talking about this cloud thing for so long. Um, it does seem like an eternity. We're gonna we're gonna delve into that a little bit, but you know, before the show, you and I were talking about sort of this role of the CIO. You know, you are the strategic advisor to CIOs. Uh, what does that role look like these days? Yeah, it's it's changing pretty demonstrably. Um, you know, the CIO of the past is not the CIO of the future. And I've written a bit about this, but I equate it between the difference of the traditional CIO and the transformational CIO. And probably the best way to distinguish between them, and that there are a number of traits that I use um, to differentiate between them. But one of the easiest ways to determine kind of generally which side of the, the fence they sit on, the CIO sits on, is are they tech-centric or are they business-centric? And what I mean by that is, are they really focused on the technology and looking at ways to um, engage the technology, or are they really focused on business objectives and focused on the business problems and business outcomes? Um, and that becomes a very huge differentiator, but there's a very different set of characteristics that differentiate between the traditional CIO and the transformational CIO. What's the better? Well, so the traditional CIO, I, I would say, you know, it's served us really well for the last several decades. Um, but unfortunately, that traditional CIO is is really going the way of the dodo. I mean, it's it's a it's a role that's in decline. And when you hear um, statements made that the CIO is becoming irrelevant or the end of the CIO, they're really talking about the traditional CIO. On the other hand, the transformational CIO, which candidly there are very few of today, but the ranks are growing, is in demand. And the reason for that is, if you think about it, you want a leader that understands the company, understands the, the business objectives, and can really bring technology up to solve some of those business problems. Um, I wrote a piece um, a couple months ago that talked about how the CIO needs to think like the CEO. And a couple of people said, well, that's, that's like running your IT organization as a business. I said, no, you missed the point. The CIO really needs to think like the CEO of the company today because many of the challenges the CIO has are the same exact challenges the CEO has. And so if you start to think like the CEO, you start to be able to bring technology to bear in ways that really impact business outcomes. And that's a very different conversation than we've seen the CIO have over the last couple of decades. And it's because every company is becoming a tech company, essentially, right? Well, every company is, so I, I hazard to, or hesitate to um, go as far as saying every company is becoming a tech company. I think technology is becoming a huge differentiator between companies that compete with one another, and it's becoming a foundational piece to every company. However, I think it's important to understand that ultimately data and how we use data and how we leverage technology as a tool 
um, is what differentiates one company to another. But that's different than the company necessarily becoming just a tech company. So who are the CIOs that are doing it right? Who are your, you know, who are your favorite CIOs that you are saying, yes, they're, they're doing it right? Gosh, I, ha I hate to single folks out only because there are a lot of really great folks uh, that do that. But let me talk maybe a little more about some of the attributes of some of those folks rather than singling out or naming uh, folks. Because here's the oh, other yeah, you problem. You want to name drop all your clients, right? Well, no, it's not that as much as, um, <laughs> you know, it's not that as much as these are folks that are already kind of fighting an uphill battle. Um, these are folks that are already on everyone's target list, especially for vendors. And the last thing I'd want to do is put a bigger bullseye <laughs> on their chest, right? So, I mean, these are, there, there are some really brilliant folks. Like I can think of one individual who's been with a number of companies as CIO um, and has really built an organization in one of the companies built an organization where even the most junior person within their organization understands how what they're doing impacts the business, impacts the company, and touches the customer. I mean, that's, that's a very different way of thinking for most IT professionals is, okay, I might be building an application, I might be doing some coding, I might be working on some infrastructure pieces, but how is that touching the customer other than the customer connects to this server for a website or... I'm building an application the customer is going to use. Do they really truly understand how this is going to benefit the customer from a business standpoint? And this individual has actually built organizations that do just that. They understand um, what they're doing and the importance of what they're doing. Um, another one that I think of is, is one that's created a culture in the Bay Area. This, this is someone in the Bay Area. Um, and there's a lot of challenge for... CIOs to bring IT professionals into their organization when they're having to compete with the likes of Google and Facebook and, and others, you know, new startups that are sexy and, and new and, and flashy. And so how do you start to attract talent within your organization when you can't pay them, um, you know, significant dollars like some of these startups are um, kind of waving in front of them? And what they've started to do is create cultures where you start to realize that, you know what, this is a culture, this is a team, this is a person that I want to follow and a team I want to work with. And so then the culture was what dominates more so than the dollar. And I think that is incredibly telling because it definitely differentiates the individuals too of what's more important. Do you really want to make as much money as you can or do you want to work toward a purpose that um, you feel really good about and you feel feel really good about the team you're working with and really want to follow the leader that, that you're working for? That's and a really so, interesting point. I, I actually have a blog that's in flight that talks about that very thing. Just just I, I think the culture piece is is the most neglected. I think there's always ways to solve things through technology and, you know, integrations and, you know, software and these new experiences. But if you don't have a culture that will allow people to have a purpose and a mission, I think you're going to be left behind. Yeah. No, I completely agree. And, you know, there's been a fair amount written that people don't quit companies, they quit leaders. So if you're working as part of a team or part of an organization 
um, that you're just not happy with, you'll get up and leave. And if you think back to your past history and companies that you've worked for or teams that you've worked with or individuals you've worked for, when you have left an organization, why have you left that organization? And I'm not saying that everyone applies to this, but there are a large number of folks that say, you know what, I like the company, but I can't work for this individual. And they're out. Right. And that's unfortunate. So we were talking uh, earlier, in addition to uh, culture and the role of CIOs, we're also talking about data. And so, you know, one of the things that I see uh, emerging as far as cloud goes is the need for infrastructure so that you can do more with your data. Yeah. Uh, and I think of lots of customers that I talk to, you know, uh, one in particular that stands out is a large bank and they've got so many different systems that they're trying to bring in together and, and trying to take all this data that they have uh, for customers and feed it into something that would allow, let's say, a chat agent or a banker to recommend products or services. Uh, how do you see data impacting uh, what companies do in terms of technology or growth or or how are companies making the most of, of data in IoT and AI and some of these other emerging technologies? Yeah, so let me kind of table the AI and IoT piece because that's a whole um, part of the conversation that, that I'd love to kind of delve into. But fundamentally, I think data is going to be the great equalizer. Um, it's going to come back to if you've got two companies that are competing with one another in the same space, same industry, um, it doesn't even matter whether the same size anymore because you've got disruptors that are coming into markets that are disrupting large incumbents. Um, and we're seeing that happen right, left, and center. But it's important to understand that I think there are two things that are going to differentiate one company from another. Number one is the data that they pull into their, their business decisions. And the more data you have and the right data that you have um, is going to give you better granularity and better accuracy in your business decision-making process. The second piece to that is algorithms. And algorithms are what, can, are what going to lead you to increasing the speed in which your decisions are made. So now what you're talking about is two companies have access to similar sets of clients, have access to similar sets of data. The real question is, how are they going to leverage that data? And that comes back to speed, algorithms, data components, which then leads directly into business decision-making. I mean, if you think about it, a lot of companies today don't make decisions without data. And so if, if you kind of delve into that a little further, you start to realize that you really need good data in order to bring this together. And I think a great example of this, and I just uh, was working with a client uh, in the last couple of weeks, and I just had a conversation this morning about this, both in the healthcare space. Data is becoming uh, a way to turn healthcare from an art to a science. And that's really, really interesting to me. Um, I've long since believed that healthcare is the one industry that is the ripest for disruption. And I think there are two attributes that are really key to that. Number one is uh, leveraging data as a means to be able to lower the thresholds for healthcare costs. So you start to get more efficiency, you start to get great, greater transparency in the process. That's more of the back office, back end pieces. 
as you start to think about the payer provider, um, as well as the, the doctors and clinics and hospitals and whatnot. And then the second piece of that is leveraging data to increase the, the level of healthcare. So everything from you're sitting in your office, I'm sitting in my office, being able to get telemetry off of our body and being able to recognize that, hey, you know what, there's a problem and let's go ahead and get that information into our physician and be able to respond to it as quickly as possible, right? Um, or when I do go in to see my physician, there's a whole history of data that's available. Or you get into research. I mean, you could love, uh, worked with a number of uh, cancer research facilities. And it's just amazing the work they're doing with data today. Um, so I think there are a number of different ways that data comes into this, algorithms come into this, analytics comes into it. And then as you mentioned, you start talking about IoT and AI and <laughs> mind blown. I mean, the opportunities are absolutely endless. I mean, we are, we are truly in the wild, wild west. And I mean that in the best of ways, not in terms of craziness, but I just had a Westworld flashback all of a sudden. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great, great time to be in IT. There's no question, no question. In my years of, of working in IT, I've had the opportunity, opportunity to see the transitions for distributed computing. I've seen the internet come of age. I've seen virtualization. And now with the cloud and what's coming, uh, it's just, it's exciting. Is it is it scary though too? I think there's probably a healthy amount of hesitation that comes into that and a lot of that can be governed based on past experience. I mean, let's face it, anytime we're going into something that we don't know, there's a little bit of hesitation, right? We're we're kind of programmed as humans of okay, there there's a risk component here, what should we do? You know, should we hesitate? Should we go, maybe go a little more um, carefully down this path? But for those that are willing to take a little more risk, the rewards are there. And um, I've seen some pretty amazing things already starting to happen, which just, again, just, it, it's just exciting. I was fun. I was browsing your Twitter feed and you and I, uh, we, we reposted the same article. That was the, the Ars Technica article about, uh, the recent uh, decision to allow ISPs to not have to ask your permission to collect and sell your data. Yeah. What, what are the implications of something like that? Well, I think this this comes back to a broader issue around privacy and how much do we value that privacy and do we really have it to begin with? Um, you know, I think there's there's a belief that um, what we do and the data that kind of surrounds it is private, and I think some of those some of those beliefs are actually fallacies. Meaning, we've actually lost a lot of the privacy capability a long time ago. We just don't realize it. And so, when things like this do come up and do start to um, uh, become more visible, I think it it starts to uh, kind of raise the the eye of the specter, right? But the piece that that really kind of got me in it was what data are they actually collecting, and how far will they take it? And it's the piece that doesn't concern the piece that does not concern me is the web browsing and and uh, things like that. But 
are we talking about they're starting to go into packets and looking at email? Are, and then take it a step further, and, and you and I have both had conversations about this in the past. What about video feeds? So now are they starting to collect information off video feeds? And so I'm hoping that some of these companies that are providing consumer-based and consumer-grade products are starting to think about how they encrypt that traffic so that it is protected the whole way and so that companies like your ISP aren't going to start to um, kind of tap into that. On the other hand, I see why the ISPs want to, to get into that data. Um, but you start talking about that along with net neutrality and you start going, okay, this, this could be bad for the consumer and there isn't a lot you can do about it. And that's the part that kind of scares me is where we are in the current climate, especially the current political climate. I think that's it's going to be a very trying time for us over the next coming years. I remember using AOL when I was younger, and uh, I think you we got switched. Mail. Yeah, we switched <laughs> off of AOL or whatever, and I was shocked that I got to keep my email address. And I'm like, how can this company like? Why would they just give me free email even though I'm not paying them anymore? Yeah. And then, you know, Gmail came across. There was a bunch of email providers. And then I was thinking to myself, wow, like these are people who potentially know everything about you, like yeah. everything about you. If you look at, you know, your your phone and you can see where you've been over the last whenever at, on a map. Yeah. Uh, and I remember my, uh, <laughs> my insurance agent, I, I bought a new house recently and I was re-upping a new policy. And he sent me these like trackers that you stick in your car. And I was like, dude, I'm not putting that thing in my car. Like, I, you know, that's giving you guys too much data. He's like, hey, man, everyone already has your data. We're just going to pay you for it in the form of a discount from your insurance policy. But it felt, felt a little big brothery to, yeah. to want to stick that in my car. And I wonder about that, like, you know, especially with with healthcare, especially. I mean, I, I can foresee a time when you know, someone has access to your health information and they could make a reasonable, uh, either via genetic testing or whatever else, they could make a, a reasonable assumption about what your health needs will be and yeah. charge you accordingly, you know? And that's so, like, that's scary. But let, let me ask you a question about that because this, this is something that, that has come up in, in very recent conversations I've had. And, and so I kind of offer this, this thought around that. If Hypothetically, if I could tell you that if you provide your entire history, your entire health history um, to, a, to a central organization that's doing research to find, I don't know, everything from um, birth defects to cancer research to, you know, God knows what. If, if I could suggest to you that if we could do that with everyone, and that would actually move what I was saying earlier, healthcare from an art to a science. So we start looking for certain markers because we know that these markers show up in certain types of patients, meaning we've collected such a large sample that now we have greater visibility into what those markers are to be able to say, okay, you are predisposed for X. If I could tell you that we could do that and we could be able to address it immediately. So essentially going oh, down. Oh, I'd be all for it. No right. doubt. Right. I think most people would if I right. if that was the case. I think where people get a little squeamish about this 
is where there's the concern of misuse of data. Yes. Right. And so, for example, if the insurance company said, great, give us your data. And if you're a great driver, no problem. We'll give you a discount. But if they misuse the data, then your trust goes away and you start going, okay, I'm not really comfortable sharing my data with them or the next person that comes along that might not be insurance or someone else, maybe the grocery store that's asking uh, data about your purchasing habits. My point to this is, I don't think it's as much that we're hesitant about sharing data if it's used for, for good purposes. And I, how do you know who you can trust though? Well, like, but that's, people that's are doing some really interesting things with data. And yeah. at what point do you say, okay, at this point I'm opening myself up to be charged more discriminated against what have you in the future? I think that's the question, right? Yeah. And I don't, I don't have a really good answer for that, but I will say, I think in general, people are believing they, they're concerned about that trust factor, but they're wanting to help organizations and ultimately to help themselves. And so there's a balance to be struck here when it comes to privacy. I personally would be more than happy to share more data than I already share. If I have trust in the organization that's going to do the right thing with that data. But, but that's the thing, that data, once it's collected, could be bought and sold by somebody with nefarious purposes. Agreed, right? agreed. And that's part of, that's one piece of the challenge. The second piece of it is that much of that data that I think I'm protecting already exists in the public or exists in databases today right. that I just don't know about. Right. I, I saw another article about employers uh, being able to, to run genetic profile on employees, voluntary, you know, and from a healthcare perspective, like I get why they'd want to do that. I mean, for all the things you mentioned, if you are predisposed to something and you can be proactive and, and offer some kind of preventative care, it'll cost you a lot less money in the long term. Sure. But, but I can also imagine that there would be employers who would look at a, some kind of score and say, oof, this is going to be a, an expensive employee to insure. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and so where do those, where do those protections kick in, you know? Well, and I think that's, that's part of it, right? I mean, we've heard for quite a while, if you wear a Fitbit tracker or, um, you know, some sort provide it, some data or health information to your insurance company about your current state, um, you'll get a discount if you're a healthy individual. But what if you're not, and you have diabetes or have some, uh, some uh, pre-existing condition and you are going to be a more expensive um, person for that health insurance company. My guess is most of those folks probably would hold back that information because they're fearful of seeing their insurance rates go up. And that's just healthcare. But, you know, you could say the same thing about car insurance, right? I, I'm not sure I want to disclose that I had you know, two fender benders in the last six months and three speeding tickets because I'm hoping they don't find it because that's just going to skyrocket my rates. And by the way, for sake of argument here, those were completely fictional things. So don't try to increase Tim's insurance <laughs> rates in the future based on some tidbit of voice data that he has floating around on YouTube. Thanks. Yes, it's all hypothetical. It's all hypothetical. So uh, we talk about technology, the, the privacy thing. Man, I could talk about that forever. It's such an interesting time 
uh, for companies and for consumers, I feel like, especially with the political climate, which is the whole nother bag of worms, but we won't talk about politics, religion, or ex-wives on this show. Uh, so <laughs> we were talking earlier, at the core of all of this technology, you know, whether you're taking data, collecting data, analyzing data, uh, creating new, better experiences for, for your end customers, at the heart of all of that, there needs to be some kind of infrastructure or computing underneath it, and that's where cloud comes in, right? Yeah. Sure and so we had a we had an interesting conversation uh, prior to the show where I asked you like, are you hearing hybrid cloud? Is it public private, or is it just cloud, or is it multi cloud? Like, what what? How are people thinking about cloud? Because I think you know, working for a vendor, we we definitely see it kind of uh, on the inside out, but. What are you seeing in, in terms of cloud? Is it table stakes at this point? It, so cloud in general should be table stakes at this point. I mean, you should be looking at how you can leverage cloud. Now that is not a statement that says you should be all in with cloud, meaning every application, every workload goes to a cloud-based solution, whether it's public, hosted, private, um, private, you know, some hybrid uh, version of that. Um, but you should definitely have hybrid as part of your overall strategy. So I'm sorry, have cloud as part of your overall strategy. And for most organizations, it's going to be some form of hybrid that kind of fits in there. The and why? Why? Why well, should you think, have cloud at this point? Yeah, the, the reality is that you can't do everything in technology today. And if you kind of go back to what I call the anthropology of of IT, what you start to realize is go back 20 years. We didn't have the ability to do some of these things um, through a third party vendor unless you wanted to outsource your organization. And yes, I said the bad word of outsourcing. Um, but the, the reality is, oh, and I, yes, I have a few scars from that to go with it. But the reality is, there are mature offerings today that allow us to kind of pick apart our portfolio of services as an IT organization and start to say, you know what? There are these pieces that can go to a public cloud infrastructure. There are these pieces that can go to this type of solution. There are these pieces that can go to a SaaS-based offering. And what I'm left with, and I have this model that I use with clients, but I have um, what you're left with is kind of this really gooey, sticky centerpiece, but it's a much smaller problem in relation to the larger portfolio of services that you started with. It's a much smaller problem to, to have to address. And here's the key. That smaller piece is also the piece that's more differentiating for your company. So for example, Nikki, you and I, we both work for different companies. We both use email. What would be the, the difference between you running and I'll just pick a, a product Microsoft Exchange within your data center versus having it hosted with 365 and it could be you know Exchange and Google Apps I'm not not endorsing any particular product I'm just saying email is a great example it, it's a very simple example but something that everyone can relate to email is a good example of there's nothing really differentiating between your company running email and mine and so why are we trying to become experts in that particular product when we are really just consumers or users of the product, right? So you start to pick off those pieces that are not differentiating for your company and what you're left with is that GUI center. And 
That GUI center is what differentiates my company from your company. That then becomes a focal point for your business to be able to say, this is what's going to help us differentiate from our competition. It's going to help provide leverage and it's going to bring focus to the conversation, which is something that we have clamored for for a very long time. So what parts of the sticky center, uh, it, where do you see the, the sticky center gaining traction among some of the vendors who've been around for a while? You wrote a, a, an interesting piece lately, uh, recently, you were talking about, you know, the Oracles, the IBMs, the Cisco's of the world. Uh, where, where are people getting the sticky center right and where are they not getting it right? And you don't have to name names. You can speak. Yeah. In yeah. I, I think the, I think the big challenge is people are, are so consternated around what's happening around the sticky center that they don't get to the sticky center or it takes them a long time to get there. That's like eating the outside of a Twinkie without eating the cream center. That's shameful. <laughs> I'm hungry. It's lunchtime. <laughs> well, or it's kind of like a sticky bun or, you know, a cinnamon roll, right? You've mm. got the crunchy outside and you kind of get to that gooey, nice gooey center. It's kind of funny that you mentioned food as an aside because the example I use and folks that have worked with me or heard me talk about this, I use monkey bread as an ex as my example of the portfolio and picking apart the pieces. And what you're left with is that gooey center. Look it up. It, it's a it's an interesting uh, interesting analogy. But back to your question, I think one of the challenges, and I just came from uh, from one of the big, actually a couple of the big vendor shows in the last uh, couple of weeks. I think one of the challenges that many of these companies have is they're really struggling to understand how the enterprise is evolving. I mean, to a large degree, the startup and web scale market has already been tapped, right? We're, we've seen that. We've seen how, it, how it's evolved. Great. Go forth and conquer. But there's this massive, massive uh, potential in the enterprise, and it is really yet to be tapped. I mean, by some metrics, some are saying that it's probably less than 5% uh, tapped. And so that just gives you a perspective of how much more we have in terms of opportunity. And what I mean by that is, you know, the, the enterprise is an incredibly complicated beast. And for anyone who's ever had responsibility in leading an IT organization or uh, delivering IT services to an enterprise, you know firsthand how complicated it really is. And part of that is political, part of it's organizational, there are process challenges. Oh, and by the way, there's some technology that, that kind of gets uh, spattered in there too. The problem is these vendors, they're, they're really struggling to understand a couple of things. Number one, how the enterprise is evolving, right? So we talked earlier about the transition from traditional to transformational CIOs. The same thing has to happen within the organization itself. And I talk about this, uh, and I'm sure you've seen it in some of my past writing, where I talk about the three-legged race, where you've got the IT organization, the CIO, and the rest of the company that all three have to evolve. And they all have to work together in unison, just like when you're doing a three-legged race at a picnic. You can't have the CIO and IT running ahead of the rest of the company or vice versa, because um, you will trip and fall. And so... They're trying to figure it out within the enterprise. The vendors are trying to figure it out and perceive how far in advance each of these companies are going. But then 
they themselves are trying to figure out what's the right message to use, who's the right target, because historically in, in the traditional organization, it's been the CIO. If you can get to the CIO, you're golden. The reality is the CIO is not your target for most companies today. Can you say that again? The CIO is not the target for most companies today. So who let should... That, let that sink in for just a minute. Because if you think about it, most, most companies are really focused on going after the CIO. When in reality, most of those products are not on the CIO's agenda. So here's, here's a great litmus test for that. If you're a vendor and you want to talk about a particular product, even if, if you're a small vendor or a large enterprise incumbent vendor, if you want to talk about a particular technology and you think that the CIO is your target, ask yourself this question. Would the CEO and the rest of the C-suite be talking about the same product? And if the answer is no, the CIO is not your target. If the answer is yes, then probably the CIO is your target. That doesn't, there's, there are more nuances to this statement, but the point is getting you to think differently about who you target and therefore what your message should be and how that evolves. And so many of these large companies are really kind of dealing with a lot of confusion around who do I go after? What's the right message that I use so that I start to get traction? Because I'm not getting the same traction as I've gotten in the past with the CIO. I see this a lot, you know, especially, you know, working at Cisco, it's really interesting because we've got just a, a really great relationship with a lot of the data center folks within our customer base. But then you want to talk about, you know, apps uh, or, you know, assistive technologies or cloud enabling technologies. It's not always the data center people that are tied into that so much. Right. And so it, it, the interesting part is that I, I think there's, there's sort of this cultural transformation that's happening. And so not every enterprise looks the same, you that's know, right. uh, and, and we see this with, with customers big and small where you've got, you know, a, a really small little pocket of a group that's trying to do something really interesting. And they are like, go forth and conquer. We've got the right skills on our team to make use of this cloud thing. But then you've got other people that are kind of almost resistant to that change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And many of those folks that are resistant to the change, which you'll find fundamentally, is they're fearful of job loss. Of course. I mean, when I have those conversations, it's because they don't understand what's next for them. And this is where the leader really has to kind of pull up a chair and have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with these folks. Because in some cases, sure, it may mean that that function is no longer needed, but it doesn't mean that that individual is no longer needed because they could be retrained, they could be moved to other parts of the organization. And then that comes back to the individual to say, okay, what are you willing to do? If you just want to be an order taker, if you just want to manage a data center, and that's all you want to do, okay, then maybe you don't work in the corporate organization anymore, but maybe you're best served to move to a provider or move to a colo facility or move to someone who is still providing data center services. And that's part of the conversation that today's leaders need to have, not just the CIO, but those within the rank and file need to have with their teams to really understand what's motivating them, what's what's that fear that's driving them in their decisions, 
um, and how do you start to address it head on? And I found from experience, when you really kind of dig into it and you put that, you know, the, the proverbial 800 pound elephant on the uh, table and say, look, I know you're fearful of job loss. Let's talk about that. Let's figure out what we can do to work together so that your concerns are addressed. You know, it's like a huge weight comes off their shoulders because they feel like, okay, I don't have to carry that myself anymore. I still have to address it, but I don't have to carry it. And so I think that's part of it is you have to understand some of the changes that are happening and dynamics within the organization. But to your earlier point of kind of if you're traditionally going after the data center team and you're, you want to talk about something higher level in the stack, and I know Cisco's been really wanting to have that conversation. I mean, how does, does a developer today really see Cisco as an example as, as a application source of knowledge? And I would argue that the answer is no, right? They see Cisco as, oh, that's, a, that's that infrastructure company. Now, that's not to say that, that Cisco is, is doing bad things. I'm just saying that it creates a challenge. It creates a challenge for Cisco. And I know for a fact that there are changes happening in Cisco that, um, that are really great and providing great value to application developers. So let that be known that there is a perception change. There is a change happening, but you have to just ha you just have to jump into these issues and address them head on and be honest about kind of where things are. Yeah, I, I look and, and I I think every large company goes to this to some degree. I mean, I was I was pretty much in agreement with everything you wrote about Oracle, HP, IBM. I mean, the bigger the company, the harder it is to turn that ship. And yeah. you know, I I wonder. Uh, as we, we go and talk to customers, how much of is it a technology problem so much as a culture problem, as a communication problem, as a problem managing expectations of millennials entering the workforce? You yeah. know, I, I think those are the parts that, that often get neglected when you're trying to help a company transform. How do you so how do you go into companies and, and have these discussions? Like what do you use a framework to kind of take companies through this? Yeah, I do. Um, and it's something that I've used within my organizations, but then something that I've, uh, you know, crafted a little further, um, you know, since then. The, I guess the, the thing is you have to, you have to really kind of understand where they are and where they're going. Um, and that's not a technology problem. In fact, and I, I think it was recently that that I had said um, said this in a couple of different forums, but we'd almost be better from an industry perspective if we stopped innovating for a little while and let people catch up. Because we've gotten to a point where we've brought a lot of technology to the table, but the adoption rates of said innovative technology is actually anemically low, especially when you look at the enterprise. And part of that is because I don't think we have really done a good job as an industry, so this is not specific to any one company or even big companies versus small, but I don't think we've done a good job of really helping companies kind of progress through that adoption cycle. And so I, I have a, um, a thing that I say when I start working with companies that, you know, within the first 30 minutes, I want to talk about the good, the bad, the ugly, and the embarrassing. And if we can get that on the table, then it's like putting that 800 pound elephant on the table, right? We can talk about it. We can figure out how to work through it. Um, we can figure out what the challenges are, but I will tell you 
that for most organizations, the problem is not technology. Most of the issues and challenges that companies have to contend with right now directly center back to culture and organization. And then that's, eventually you get to process and technology. That's hard to fix. How do you fix that? You know, how well, do you, it, it's a process, right? It's not just something where you throw a solution on the table like, oh, we're going to, you know, buy this new app or, you know, form this new partnership to retrain our entire workforce, right? Well, go back to a, an earlier part of our conversation, right? I mean, technology organizations have been around for decades. You know, it's taken us decades to get to this point. We're not going to just unwind that ball of yarn overnight. It's going to take a while to do it. Now, I don't think it'll take decades, but we need a concerted effort to focus on unwinding that ball of yarn and thinking about how we evolve cultures. Like I mentioned earlier, some leaders have actually been able to do this, and, that, and the number of leaders that are, that are heading down that path is growing, which is great. That's a huge opportunity for the companies that they work in. But we need more of that. We need more conversation around the people issue, around the cultural issues. And we need to stop having these, these really stupid, silly, religious arguments about technology. Business leaders don't care. They really don't care. So let's stop it. Let's get focused on what the business outcomes are. Let's figure out how we change the way our organizations operate. Let's make some meaningful things happen and get on with it. And I think once we do that as a profession, not just the leader, but those within the rank and file, um, we'll start to see some real change uh, taking place. And you know, that, this brings up an interesting point. You know, I've, I've been doing the, the, the women in tech stuff for a while, uh, but, but I do notice, uh, a pretty significant difference in the way that women share and communicate versus the way men communicate. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I'm trying to think about your role. I imagine you going in somewhere and almost being somewhat of a, a career coach in a way, because it sounds like a lot of the issues that are happening are around communication. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's something that I studied uh, in college and it's a little bit near and dear to my heart. Uh, but, you know, I think there's been a, a very sort of patriarchal, you know, authoritative kind of way in which a lot of older companies operate. Uh, and now you've got these, you know, small startups where there's no walls and everyone sits on the same uh, sort of level playing field. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's interesting to kind of see these small companies that have way fewer resources and a way lower